So this morning's reading is from James chapter 1 and beginning at verses 19. And I'm reading from the NIV. It's about listening and doing. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after look at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and the religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of God. Well, thank you, Susie, and welcome back. Good to have you with us. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to have you here this morning. Um, just a couple of uh, announcements. Firstly, this coming Wednesday morning is the men's morning tea here at the church at 9.30. Fantastic guest speaker, uh, Michael Hunter, who some of you might know. Michael is a great man of God. Uh, he's been involved for many years with the Bible Society. Uh, he's a local businessman and he'll have a great story to tell. So guys, if you're free and available, 9.30 this coming Wednesday here at the church, would love to see you here. Uh, some of you may be aware that this week, ABC on the 7.30 report, and there was a subsequent article uh, that has been run, and it's, it's caused quite a lot of conversation, um, certainly in social media and, and, and also in the broader community, around uh, domestic violence in Christian churches in Australia. And uh, this is a real issue. Um, well, certainly domestic violence more broadly is an issue, but uh, it's kind of being exposed um, in, in Protestant evangelical churches, which we kind of find ourselves in one of. Uh, I'm really pleased to say that the Director of Ministries, Steve Bartlett, from the Baptist Association, has written a brilliant response uh, as to how the Baptist Association more widely is responding proactively to, uh, to this issue. And I intend to include a bit of a summary of what he's written for the broader church uh, family next Sunday. Uh, and also, just to let you know, the leadership team is meeting this, this Thursday, and it's going to be something that we're going to talk about as well, just practically how we as a church can, can respond to this, um, this issue, both for our own um, church community, but also to be proactive um, in meeting this uh, need in the wider community. Well, last week, we began a new series 
at the, in looking at the book or the letter of James, five chapters in length. I really want to again thank Doug Sutherland who's put these terrific studies together, available for groups or individuals, so that we as a church can really just dig down deep into God's Word and, uh, and get the most out of this series. So if you missed last Sunday, or just to refresh your memory, let me just briefly recap for us what we, co- what we covered in the first section of James chapter 1. So James, the author, was the half-brother of Jesus. John 7, 5 informs us that James uh, and Jesus' other siblings were not believers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Therefore, James's letter is written specifically from someone who, who has a, a pessimistic or a skeptic understanding. They know what it's like to be skeptical about faith. And there's an underlying message that pervades James's letter, which says something along the lines of, this is what unbelievers think. You say you have faith. I want to see it lived out in your life. You see, for James, true faith must always result in an authentic walk. The resurrection was a turning point for James and presumably the other siblings of Jesus. James went on to become a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 refers to James as a pillar of the church. He's a pivotal person in the church's early formation. Unlike Paul's letters, so when we're used to studying letters of the Scripture, generally it's a letter written by Paul. And Paul's letters, uh, often as designated by their title, are written to a particular people or a particular church addressing particular or specific issues. James's letter, however, is quite different. It is written to a circular audience, to the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the scattered Messianic Jews. Uh, so James's letter is, is not addressed to a specific community. It is addressed to the broader community. It has a circular readership. Chapter 1 of James functions very much like a contents page in a book uh, for the rest of the four chapters in the letter. In this first chapter, he is touching on and covering all the themes that he will delve into in those other four chapters. James, as you know, is a deeply practical letter, and it draws very heavily on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's very reminiscent of a lot of the Old Testament wisdom literature, specifically the Proverbs. Now, the main reason that the Jews were scattered abroad was because of their faith in Jesus. They knew firsthand what it was to face trials and persecution for placing your faith in Jesus. So it makes perfect sense that James says to them, consider it pure joy, brothers, brothers and sisters, when you face trials that test your faith of many kinds because these trials will create in you a perseverance. And so these people knew firsthand what it was to experience trial for their faith. But James wants to say that trials produce perseverance. And perseverance is so good because perseverance results in maturity. It results in growth. And after all, is that not the goal of the follower of Jesus to grow in Christian maturity, to grow more increasingly into the likeness of our Saviour. Now, from a worldly perspective, seeing trials as something to be embraced seems ludicrous. 
Now, James is already ahead of you because at this point he says, well, if you're, under, if you're to understand trials as something to be embraced uh, rather than endured or fled from, you're going to need God's perspective. You're going to need God's wisdom. And so James then talks about wisdom. And according to James, wisdom does not come from age. It does not come from study. It does not necessarily come from life experience. All the things that we would equate as being necessary to become wise. Conversely, James says, if you want wisdom, you ask God for it, who gives generously. So if you want wisdom, James says, you pray. You go to God and you ask because it is his wisdom that you seek. It is not the wisdom of the world that you need because the wisdom of the world will not tell you that you should enjoy or embrace trials that test your faith. You need God's wisdom and therefore ask him and he will give. But don't be too, don't be double-minded Don't go to God sort of thinking, well, maybe he'll bless me. Go to God in faith, expectant that God will give you his wisdom. And James is going to give us another clue in this second part of chapter 1 about where godly wisdom comes from and where we can find it. Finally, James reminds his readers, oh, sorry, uh, an immediate example, even in this little section of chapter 1, James then gives his readers an example of what godly wisdom looks like. And here it is. He contrasts the rich and the poor. Now, according to the world, the rich are superior to the poor. But in God's economy, it's the other way around. It's upside down. According to James, those who are poor are indeed rich because they have to rely more on God. They're more dependent upon God. They have a stronger faith in God. And according to James, this makes them blessed as opposed to the rich and the wealthy as we as middle-class Australians so well know that our wealth and all of our possessions and our superannuation and investments can so easily make us become self-sufficient. And according to James, this is a danger that we need to be aware of. It's not saying that these things are bad, but it's saying make sure you keep a check of yourself, that we're to be reliant on God and God alone because one day each one of us will face our maker. And have we placed our trust in him or have we placed our trust in our wealth? And that's the question that James raises there. Finally, James reminds his readers that God is the giver of all good gifts. He starts with grace. And the greatest gift that God gives is the gift of salvation, the crown of life, eternal life in Jesus. And this gift is not a result of anything that we can do or earn. It is a result of God's grace. And this grace which transforms us calls us to live holy lives that honour God. Holy lives that honour God are, in a way, the first fruits. And this means this is a picture or an image, blurred as it may be, 
of what God originally had in mind for humanity before the fall. You see, it was always God's intention and design and desire that people would live in perfect harmony in relationship with him and one another. As Mike Frost insightfully suggests, the faith of the Christian, therefore, is uh, in effect to be something like a movie trailer as to what is to come of relationships, of how people relate to one another when God's kingdom is fully restored to its original state of perfection and peace in Eden. In this perfected state, people listen to one another. People speak with genuine love. They refrain from flying off the handle. They're generous. They care for the plight of others and they live with complete integrity. This brings us to verse 19a. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. James is first and foremost a pastor. He writes with a pastor's heart. My dear brothers and sisters. Now, the original Greek is beloved brethren. But there's a very loving tone in the way he writes. And even though what James is going to say is direct and confronting, he writes in love. He speaks the truth in love. We see the pastoral heart of James time and time again through his letter. And what James has to say is applicable to every listener. It is not just for some. It is for all. It's as though he says, what I have to say is really important. So take note. Lend an ear. I see three sections in this second part of James 1. And we're just going to work through them systematically. The first section has to do with communication, listening, speaking, and the temper, which more often than not is expressed through words. James will then address the word and finally acceptable religion. So let's jump in, starting out with communication. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Right here is an example of godly wisdom. Hasty, unreflective speech and a temper that easily flies off the handle, unsurprisingly, does not please God. When you think about God's original design for people and how they would communicate with one another, do you think it would involve thoughtless and selfless communication coupled with an uneven temper? No way. I'm sure that's not the picture in your mind. Genuine communication is two-way. Where one person speaks thoughtfully 
and another person listens carefully and reflectively, responding in a manner which demonstrates they have truly heard what has been spoken. This type of speech inevitably avoids rising tempers because people feel heard. People feel listened to. People feel valued. When people truly listen to one another, this is a great recipe for eradicating so much of the anger and temper that we can experience. Often our temper rises when we feel talked over or unheard. The way we listen and speak to people is a huge deal. Is this not one of the most basic things of humanity? And James addresses it right at the outset of his letter. How we listen and talk to one another. If you think about your life, how much of your life is consumed with listening and talking? Communication is huge. And as believers, we need to be good communicators. We need to learn the skill and the art of listening. So many troubles and problems in the world find their root in poor communication and uncontrolled tempers. How often do we find ourselves regret, regretting words spoken in the heat of the moment? <clears throat> so often. It's such practical, down-to-earth wisdom, isn't it? We read in Proverbs 17, 27, 28, something very similar. A truly wise person, note, this is a godly person. This is God's wisdom. A truly wise person uses few words. A person with understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent with their mouths shut. They seem intelligent. Genuine believers are thoughtful communicators. They listen well. Their speech is considered. And they learn to control their temper and respond to stressful situations with godly wisdom. I'm sure you've all heard the adage which says, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. According to James, one of the practical ways believers communicate is by listening twice as much as they speak and learning to control themselves when their frustration levels rise. This is not easy, but this is what it means to follow Jesus. <laughs> I mean, to be a follower of Jesus affects every aspect of your life. Everything you do gets 
impacted and transformed when you're a follower of Jesus. So if you've got an issue with a rising temper, James says, have a look at yourself, ask God for wisdom, and sort it out. If you're not a good listener, ask God to help you be a good listener. You know, one of the things that I've learned about listening is you can listen well when you know the art of a good question. So just, again, just a really practical little advice. If you're going to meet with somebody, if you're going to have coffee or you're going to someone's house for dinner or you're going to visit someone, I just encourage you to think about what are the questions I'm going to ask? What are the questions I'm going to ask that are going to enable me to listen? The art of a good question. Such a powerful little tool when it comes to showing love and value to another person. And the more questions you ask, the more opportunities you will have to listen. This is just so practical when it comes to living out our faith, being good listeners, being good communicators, and controlling our tempers. All right, let's keep moving. The Word. Verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted within you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, central to James's viewpoint, indeed, to the whole Bible, is the intimate connection between knowing God's word and doing what it says. If you accept the word of God, then it follows that you will act upon it. The antidote to hateful anger and all the moral filth of the world, the world is to humbly accept the word that has been planted in you, which can save you. What is the word? Well, the word here is the word of truth, referred to back in verse 18, when James emphasised the word's power to give us new birth. Several times, he then goes on to talk about the word in verses 21, 22, and 23. He references the word. According to James, God's Word not only gives life and new birth, but it transforms. So through the Word, salvation comes. Through the Word, renewal and rebirth comes. 
but then the Word continues to do an ongoing work in the life of a believer, transforming the way they listen, the way they speak, the way they control their temper. The Word constantly is doing a work in us. John Dixon writes, There was only one word of truth in the possession of the Christian communities in the middle of the first century when James wrote his letter. It was the all-important collection of traditions about Jesus' life and teaching. These were memorised and rehearsed throughout the churches before later being written down in what we call the Gospels. The Word. Now, what's interesting is we've heard of the word four times. And then in verse 25, there is a shift in language. Whilst James is still very much on the same train of thought, he refers to this same word as the perfect law which gives freedom. The perfect law which gives freedom. As you will have... And we'll continue to observe, James is a very skilled illustrator. He uses several illustrations throughout his letter to highlight the point that he is trying to make. He is a skilled teacher. In this instance, he likens a person who hears the word but does not act upon it with the person who stares at their face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. This forgetful person simply hears the word and forgets it. And that person is contrasted with a different type of person who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Notice there are two different approaches to the word. One person simply listens to the Word. Now, it's good that they're listening to the Word that they've heard. But my impression is that it's a rather passive approach. It doesn't say this, but in my mind, it's almost like the pew sitter. It is the person who just passively receives the word without really making any effort to dig into the word themselves. Scarily, I think this is probably the norm for so many followers of Jesus today. Unfortunately, this person forgets And it's interesting how significant forgetting God and forgetting the works and indeed the Word of God is. One of the great warnings to the church or to the Israelite people throughout the Old Testament is not to forget. God is constantly, through His prophets, reminding the nation of Israel of God's faithfulness, of all the times that he has proven himself faithful. Don't forget. 
and then even around the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me. We are so prone to forgetting. It's one of the reasons why we sing songs, I think. If you take notice of the words in the songs that we sing, many of those songs recount the story of God, the story of salvation, the story of the cross and the resurrection. And unashamedly, we continue to return to that story so that we don't forget. Because this story shapes us and it transforms us. Now, the person who passively hears the word and then forgets is, in this particular passage, uh, placed in contrast to the alternate person who intently looks into the perfect law that brings freedom. The word translated here as looks intently has a basic meaning of stooping down or looking by bending over. There is a sense of rigorous exploration. In other words, this person studies the word for themselves, they are proactive. And in doing so, they come to discover that the word is perfect and that the word leads to freedom. This person will be blessed in what they do. Indeed, hearing and doing leads to blessing. This statement is so remarkably close to what Jesus said on his sermon on the mount in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Christianity is primarily a religion of listening and hearing. If you think about it, so much of what we do when it comes to gathering together as God's people is listening and hearing. And now, this is good and right. It certainly follows in the biblical tradition of Judaism because we believe in a God who has spoken. Right from the very onset, God speaks creation into being. And we believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, whose life and ministry and resurrection has been communicated to us through words. We have the Bible, which we can study and read, and that teaches us about the person of Jesus. So it's, it's good and proper for us to engage with listening and hearing. The problem, however, is when these activities become goals in themselves. Listening to the scriptures and understanding their meaning can come to be seen as primary acts of godliness. 
However, growing in our knowledge of God's Word is not the goal of the Christian life. Rather, it is simply the means by which God prepares us for a life of obedience. And it's how He strengthens us for a life of faith. Attending church services, Bible studies, uh, groups and personal readings of the Scripture are all important, but they are not the central acts of what it means to live the Christian life. They are the provision, I guess they are the inputs that God offers to us for the output that He expects from us. Doing without hearing is impossible, so we have to hear However, what James is stressing here is that hearing without doing is worthless. If you only hear but don't do, you're wasting your time, more or less. That's what James is saying. All right, let's move on to the final section, acceptable religion. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word religion, used three times in verses 26 and 27, certainly has negative connotations for us today, doesn't it? If someone were to refer to you as a religious person, how would you respond? I'm not religious. Um, That would be my response. I'm not religious. But we need to understand what what James means here. You know, religion on, on James's lips is simply the outward expression of your faith. That's what it means. To be religious is to act out your faith. That's what it means to James. So let's just understand these passages in those terms of reference. Uh, Twice already in this chapter, James has given a warning not to be deceived. And he gives a third warning now in the context of keeping a tight rein on one's tongue. He's back to communication again. James understands human nature. And a loose tongue which slanders, gossips, or uses foul and offensive language is in no way befitting for a believer. It stands in defiance of what it means to be a person of faith. And as I'm studying this week, I just have James there saying, So if this is an issue for you, sort it out. Get a grip. Get it under control. Take responsibility. It's your tongue. It's no one else's. Deal with it. (laughs) There's just a frankness to James, which I appreciate. Next, taking a leaf out of Isaiah's book... James addresses how we treat the world's most vulnerable. Orphans and widows were the most underprivileged group in James's day. They had very few rights, very little power, and no status at all. Without a social welfare like we enjoy here in Australia, 
people of such low socioeconomic standings frequently lived in dire poverty. Now, the early church took this very seriously. In Acts 6, we read about the early church setting up a daily large food roster for destitute widows. And on a separate occasion in 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul, we read about him conducting like an international aid project or mission trip where he visits a number of churches collecting money from the churches of Turkey, Greece and Macedonia to go and take and bless with these famine-ravaged believers of Palestine. So we can already see how the early church acted upon this. And I think this is the type of thing that James has in mind. It's intentional. It's generous. It's practical. And it is organised. Caring for those in need. In addition, standing up for the rights of the voiceless, marginalised, destitute, abused and refugee who flee persecution are all very tangible expressions that the scriptures, they literally just assume believers will do these things because we've been called to love our neighbour. And these are all acts of loving one's neighbour. We know from the story of the Good Samaritan that our neighbour is quite literally any person in need. And interesting that Jesus, I think, quite intentionally uses a foreigner. (laughs) So having a heart for foreign aid and, and acting upon that heart is so the heart of God. And that's what that command is all about loving your neighbor as you love yourself i'm sure james would say that supporting the many wonderful christian organizations who are continuing this most important ministry today is a mandate for all believers who have the capacity to do so and i'm so pleased to be part of a church that is so proactive supporting and promoting the work of mission and justice for the sake of the gospel. May we continue in this good work. John Dixon writes that when people, when James says to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, he is not referring to sex, drugs and rock and roll. James most likely has an economic perspective in mind, seeing this is what his trail of thought is. He's talking directly about caring for those who are economically poor and have no voice. Interestingly, I discovered also this week that there is no and between these two statements in the Greek. So it actually reads like this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Huh. Isn't it amazing what just an and can do? Isn't that a different way of looking at that passage? It's not a a disconnected thought. It relates. It makes sense. Don't be economically selfish. Consider others who are less fortunate than you. 
caring for the needs of the vulnerable and contributing financially towards them with a generous in spirit is a good antidote to greed. That's what James is talking about here. You're only going to be able to care for the poor and the destitute and the vulnerable if you're not greedy. (laughs) Because you actually have to learn to share what you've got with those who have less. That's what it means to follow Jesus. If we're going to walk in the footsteps of the master who gave everything, then we'll practice being generous and giving to those in need. If James was preaching this message here today, I imagine him saying something like this. You thought acceptable religion was something other than this. Perhaps something more pious or saintly. No. True religion is hands-on, blue-collar. True religion gets its hands dirty. It mows lawns, it visits, it cooks meals, it babysits, it fosters, it adopts, it offers lifts, it texts, calls, sends cards and flowers, it donates, it petitions, it asks genuine questions, it listens, it encourages, it loves, it cares. If you occupy yourself doing these things, your faith will have legs And indeed, it will be genuine. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. May we, men and women of faith, heed God's word to us this morning. Amen. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Teach us to understand it and obey it always. Forgive us for neglecting those less fortunate than ourselves. By your spirit, protect us.